0: All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Todd, one of the elders here at Anthem Church, and we will be in Acts 3 today, if you want to open there. Um, At Anthem, we go through the Bible. That's what we do here. It's one of our defining characteristics is we love the Bible, and we're going to preach from it. We're going to learn and study what God says, and then we're going to commit ourselves to doing it because he's worth it, and he's worth all of it. And we love that. We love that about God, and we love that he's given us a word that we can know him better. And lots of people like the Bible uh, for different reasons. Some people like the Bible because of the stories. If you've ever read the Bible, there's some really good stories in the Bible. And if you have kids, you learn this or you remember this. Because you're like, oh, I forgot. And you start reading some of these kids' stories in your uh, little uh, children's Bibles. And you're like, these are some really actually good stories. Like the substance of the stories are really interesting. And so some people like the Bible because they like good stories. Some people like the Bible because it has rules and information and helpful wisdom for like, I don't know what to do with my life. And so you open your Bible and you find wisdom on what to do and how to handle your affairs. And then some people like the Bible because they just want to be caught up into some like meaning, some greater purpose, something ancient that's been around for a long time. And it feels like it has some weightiness or some authority to it. And the truth is, is the Bible is not any of those things. It is all of those things. The Bible is a story. The Bible does have meaning, and it does have rules and information and wisdom on how to rule your life. And one way that this has been popularly formatted, I have it on a slide here for you, is this idea of drama, doctrine, doxology. So the Bible is a story. It's a drama. There are events that happen. There's a stage on which things take place. And the Bible tells you that. If you just open your Bible, the Bible's going to tell you, here's things that happened. Here's something that somebody did. Here's something that somebody said. Here's a place they went but then the Bible's also going to tell you in doctrine what some of those stories mean. It's going to say, here's what happened, but here's what it means. Here's the significance of why this took place. Here's the story, but here's what it means. And then doxology, it's going to invite you into the story. It's like, this could be your story. This isn't, doesn't have to just be some ancient story or some kids thing that we read to our children at night before bed. This could be a story that we get to be part of. These could be our forefathers. These could be our ancestors. This could be part of our heritage, and we could be adopted into that. And doxology is our response to the story. So there's a story, there's meaning, and there's an invitation to join the story. And that is what the Bible is all about. And today, in Acts chapter 3, we're actually going to see this played out. Um, The first 10 verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, actually is a drama. We're going to see just some things take place. So if you open your Bibles to Acts 3, the first 10 verses, let's just read what happened. Here's the drama. Here's the story. at what had happened to him. So Peter and John are people we know. They're Jesus' disciples. They're characters we're familiar with in the story. But we get introduced to a new guy here, a lame man. He's a new character who's being introduced into this story. And here's his story. He has been lame since birth. He has never walked his entire life. He's never tripped up the stairs. He's never skinned his knee because he got too excited running across the field. He's never had legs that worked, ever, his entire life. He's never had the ability to walk. He's never had the chance to fall down and get back up again. He's only ever been down. He's only ever been down. And daily, people carry him to this gate. So every day, his life, his story, is that somebody comes and gets him, and he's at the mercy of whenever they come to get him, they're running late or had things going on he just has to wait and they carry him and then they sit him somewhere and he's stuck there until they come at the end of the day and bring him back because he can't walk and this is his story and they carry him to a specific location they just don't carry him anywhere they carry him to a gate and it's a specific location because it's a place where he thinks would be the best place to probably get the money he needs to take care of himself because there's people going to church And the best place to probably situate yourself is at this gate. And he sits there and he asks for alms. He asks for offerings which religious people would be expected to give to the poor. And they're right there. So you have your immediate application. You're leading church. I should be kind to the poor. Hey, there's the poor person. So it's a strategic place to be. That's his life. And that is his story. Day by day. It says daily this was his life. And then God interrupts his story. God initiates and breaks into this guy's story. And this is the case for some of you. You're just living life, just doing your thing, going about whatever it is you do daily. And all of a sudden, God breaks in. And we see it here that Peter directs his gaze at him. Most people, when they see somebody begging you, the last thing you want to do is make eye contact you don't know what to do then at that point. You're like, ah, but if I just pay attention, if I just look ahead and don't look at them, I can pretend like they're not there. But Peter looks at him on purpose. He looks directly at him and says, look at us. Like he, he breaks into this guy's story and says, look at me right now. Look at us. Look at me and John. And then he tells them what's about to happen. He's like, look at me. I don't have any money. <laughs> He's like, well, you didn't have to interrupt my day to tell me that. <laughs> I feel like there's one reason for this transaction that's about to take place, and now you just told me, hey, hey, look at me. I have no money. (laughs) It's like, well, cool. (laughs) Thanks, guy. But he tells him. He's like, but he interprets for him what's about to happen. Even in his own little story, he's giving him an example of this drama, doctrine, doxology. Even in this, Peter's saying, like, he interrupts. He initiates this guy's into this guy's story, breaks in, and says, hey, hey, look at me. I'm about to interrupt your story. And what you think is about to happen is not going to happen. I don't have any money, but I have something else. I have something different in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He interprets him what's about to happen. Here's the meaning of what's going on. The guy's like, what's the meaning of all this? If you don't have money, why are we talking? He's like, because I have something else, and I want to give it to you. And then doxology, he invites him. He puts his hand out and says, you want in on this? You want in on this Jesus thing? Because that's what I have to offer today. And you're welcome to it. And that is maybe some of your stories. You can recognize the time in your life where God interrupted your story. And he busted into your story. And then he, with some weird event that threw things off, and then he interpreted it for you, saying, here's what's really happening. This is a God thing right now. This isn't just a weird day. This is a chance for God interrupting what you normally were going to do. And then he invites you into it. Are you in? You want in on this? And so this guy takes his hand and gets up. And once he is up, did you see it, like once he's up, he's like up, up. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like if this were a movie or like you know Grey's Anatomy, there would be some like, he would be laying on a bed and there'd be some like tight shot on his toes. And like in the background, his face would be all blurry and you'd see the toe and you'd be in anticipation, the music would swell and you'd see like a little wiggle. And you'd be like, oh, his toe wiggled. <laughs> And then it would, like, go down, like, into, like, roast beef and wee-wee-wee all the way home. And it would just, like, make its way all the way down. (laughs) And then it would, like, zoom. And then it would zoom in. So now the feet are blurry. And then you see his face. He's like, oh, I can't my feet move. And then, like, it would slowly happen. And the music would swell. And then some handsome doctor would come in. And then that would be how that story would go. (laughs) But this guy goes from lame to leaping in, like, point two. Like, just like the second he receives the invitation, the second he accepts and says, I want in on that story. That story sounds better than mine. I want in on that. The second he receives that and responds in faith to the offer, he is immediately up and leaping around. It says, and do you see the description? His legs were made strong. Like, they didn't, like, gradually grow over time. They were strong. The second he got up, they were strong. The second you respond to Jesus, you are strong. Like, you have it immediately. It's like you have it available to you. You are leaping. And, and, he, and it says that he was walking and leaping and praising God. So he's like, woo-hoo, woo-hoo! which is undignified to do in church. I get that. <laughs> I get that you're like, I wish you hadn't done that to I don't respect you anymore. <laughs> That's fine. I'd rather be leaping with this guy. <laughs> like, look at him. He's jumping around crazy, and, and he's all excited, like, woo, I can walk. And everybody's seeing him. They're like, isn't that the guy who could, has never walked? Like, he's he's not only just upright, he is jumping around like crazy. It reminds me of what Malachi said in uh, chapter 4, verse 2. I have it up on a slide for you. It says this. It says, For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. If you've never seen this before, do yourself a favor. Go on YouTube and just look up Leaping Calves. And you'll find a few videos, and you'll see these calves that have gotten out into the field for the first time after a long winter, and they're just, like, all over the place. And it's so cute because they're, they're so clumsy, but they're so excited. They're just so excited, just leaping around, flailing around. Naturally, if you do this thing in public, it draws a crowd. <laughs> and people start, like, doing, even if I wasn't up here with a microphone, if I stood back there and started jumping around going, woohoo! Everybody would turn and be like, I don't care about the microphone guy anymore. I want to know what's going on with crazy screaming guy back there. So it draws a crowd. And the obvious question that all the crowd asks is what any responsible person would ask. What's the meaning of this? What does this mean? Why is this happening? That leads us to doctrine. Doctrine explains what happens, and that's where the next few verses in our story tell us. Doctrine, chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. Peter begins to explain to us what's going on here for everybody in the passage. So while this guy clung to Peter and John, not clinging because he needs them to stand up, his legs are strong, he's just clinging to them because they just gave him the ability to walk through faith in Jesus. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has, been given, has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter says, here's the meaning of all this. Things are not what you thought they were. Things are not what you thought they were. This, this lame man had been laying daily daily. Being brought to this place, and he thought that his biggest problem was getting enough money to meet his needs for the day. But behind that problem was the problem of mobility. He couldn't walk, that's why he was there asking for money. So, even behind his most obvious problem is that I need money, was a bigger problem that he didn't have the ability to walk. But behind that is an even bigger problem that Peter points to. Peter says, This man's biggest problem wasn't monetary or mobility, it was mortality. This man was going to die someday. His biggest problem was not that he needed money right now or that he needed legs to walk. It's that he was going to die and face God someday. And so Peter's saying, this miracle is not meant to point to this miracle. This miracle is meant to point to the miracle. This miracle is meant to point to something bigger than even this. Don't pay attention. Why are you staring at this guy as though this is the important thing? Think about the name of the man who died and was raised to life. That represents the power of his name that has made this guy walk today before you. I don't know what you think your problems are this morning. I don't know what problems you came in here with, what's on your mind, what's on your heart, what your prayer life would be focused on right now, if you were focusing on that. But is it possible that your problems are not what you think they are? Just bear with me. Is it possible that the thing that you think that's hanging right there in front of you is just a surface level thing and behind that there's something else that's really driving that? There's actually a bigger problem that you're not paying attention to. Is that just possible? At least concede it in principle that maybe the things you're so focused on are not the big things. Maybe there's something behind that that is a bigger problem. Now, let me be clear. This man's disability is a real problem. I'm not, I'm not broad brushing that. He has a real problem with real consequences. He, he has a real disability, and it causes him to actually be poor and be in this situation. So while it is a big problem, it's, it's not his biggest problem. It's just the most obvious one. So for some of us, we have obvious problems. This man's obvious problem is he needs money to eat today. The obvious problem behind that one is that he needs money because he can't walk. But there are bigger problems behind even the ones that immediately rise to the surface. Because all physical healing is at best only temporary. You have sick relatives. You have people with ailments. You pray for them. And please do. My mom is sick right now. I've been praying for them. I've had sickness in my house. I've been praying for them. But all physical healing is only temporary. Peter and John themselves, the ones who stood and helped, stood over this guy and gave him the opportunity by faith to walk, themselves died. This man was healed and he walked around and then one day he died. His biggest problem was not that he couldn't walk, his biggest problem was that he was going to die and face God. And so Peter redirects all of our attention and says, Stop focusing on the walking lame man and start focusing on the walking dead man. Don't, it's like Yes, this is miraculous, but if all you do is direct your attention at this, you are missing the bigger thing behind this. There's much bigger things than this. Jesus, he said, was murdered by you. You killed the author of life, but because he's the author of life, he's alive. He doesn't stay dead. That's miraculous, and there's actually hope in that, that it undergirds every other problem you could possibly have. The biggest problem you have has been solved. By the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter does not want you to miss that in the midst of these obvious, real problems that you have on a daily basis. So, what should the response be to that? That's where doxology comes in. Look at verses 17 through 26. So, Peter directs them how to respond. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people." And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets in the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So again, even here, we see in Peter's explanation, we see this pattern of drama, doctrine doxology. He says, here's the story. God has been telling a story through the prophets from the beginning. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, has been telling a story. Three chapters into the book, he promises a serpent crusher to deal with the sin that has happened just one chapter before. And so Moses predicted that another prophet would come, another person like him, but only better than him. And Samuel and David and Abraham all were pointing forward to this thing. God said, I've been telling this story for a long time. And here's what the story means. Jesus fulfilled everything I said I would do. Second Corinthians says, in Christ, everything is amen. Jesus is the yes. He's the amen. He's the may it be so to every promise God has ever made. Every promise is yes in Christ, every single one of them. And he's saying, Christ has fulfilled everything I said I was going to do. Everything leading up to this moment has now been fulfilled on the crux of Jesus Christ. And then he invites them to join into it by saying, repent and turn. Do you want this to be your story? Are you tired of where your story is leading you? Have you seen the writing on the wall? Do you know how your story ends? Do you you want to avoid that? Join a different story. Join a bigger story that's been going on long before you were born and will continue to go on long after you've been gone. But it's bigger than you and you can enter into it. And he says the way to do that is to repent and turn back. And then he gives three reasons why. He says, turn back that. And he gives three explanations. That your sins may be blotted out. Completely off the record. If they're there, they were accounted for, they were documented somewhere, and now they're blotted out like they never happened. And that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That when you meet God, it will be a happy day. When you repent and turn back, when you look at him, that's a good experience times of refreshing. You can expect to be revived in the presence of God if you repent and turn back. And then he says that he may send the Christ who is appointed for you. If you just turn around, you are going a direction. Your story is heading a certain direction. And if you stop and turn around, Jesus is right there. He's right there. If you turn around, he is right there, ready to receive you. All you have to do is stop, repent, agree with him that where you're going is wrong, and turn around. And the second you do, he is right there. Turn and take hold of Jesus, who's right there. Because look what it says in verse 21: Heaven must receive him. What Jesus did is perfect, is perfect. It met all of God's requirements. Heaven is obligated to receive Jesus. And if you are in him, then you he is obligated to receive you. But heaven is not obligated to receive your sorriness. Does that make sense? When you guys, if you feel bad about your sins, that is the right response. But God is not under obligation to receive your sorriness. If all you do is feel bad about things, heaven is not, does not have to receive that. Just feeling bad about things doesn't accomplish things. A lot of people come to church and they hear a sermon, they're like, ah, yeah, they, I should do that, or I feel bad. And they leave and that's all that comes of it, it's just feeling bad. Let me tell you, God does not just want you to feel bad. If you feel bad about your sin, that's the right response. You should feel bad when you do horrible things to people. Can we, just be, can we all agree on that? If you do something bad, you should feel bad. Do we agree? Yeah, okay. Good, I hope so. You're a crazy psychopath. <laughs> you do feel bad when you do mean stuff? You should feel bad. But that's not all. God gave that to you as a gift to lead to something else. Just like with the, other, with, with the previous situation. It's not just supposed to end there. It's supposed to lead to repentance that leads to life. The Bible says that godly sorrow leads to death, or ungodly sorrow just leads to death and more death. Like, it just makes you feel bad, and then you turn inward, and then you feel bad that you're not living up, and then it just winds and spirals down. But godly repentance actually leads to change. And heaven must receive his works on your behalf. So go into him, and you will be received. Just like this man's legs never worked without Jesus. You feeling sorry for yourself will never work without Jesus. His legs were not going to work just because he felt bad about his situation. It wasn't going to change anything. His legs were going to stay lame. But with Jesus, everything changed. Stop just feeling bad and turn to Jesus. God isn't sending all these sermons and stuff into your life so that you'll go home and feel bad about yourself. He wants you to turn and face Him. And then you will be received and you will no longer feel bad, you will be forgiven which gives you the benefit of agreeing with God that your sins were bad, but it also allows you to be in his presence and be happy, to be joyful and be like, you were right. I was wrong. Glorious day. <laughs> I'm worse than I thought I was, but you're better than I ever imagined. Because understand the implication here. He says all these things will happen. So understand the flip side of that. If you do not repent and turn back, your sins will not be blotted out. They stay on record. They have to go somewhere. They will either go on Jesus or they will stay on record. And times of refreshing are not coming from the presence of God. The last thing in the world you want to do is meet God without Jesus. The last thing you want to do is meet God without Jesus. You don't want to have this like, well, when I meet the big man upstairs. We're going to have some words. It's like there will be words in one direction only. And there will be silence on the other side of that table. And understand the implication if you do not repent and turn back. Jesus is not where you are looking. You can take your story wherever you go, but if you do not stop and turn around, it is not headed towards Jesus. It is only found in stopping and turning. Wherever you continue to go, you will not find him there. Turn back. So how will you personally respond to this today? Will you accept God's invitation to join his story? Will you actually do that? Or maybe you've done that before. Do you want to continue to, to live in light of that? We are a next generation church, as Matt pointed out earlier, which means we have lots of weddings which is awesome. Like, one of the benefits of being in a young church is that there's lots of babies and weddings. It's awesome. And hopefully in the other direction. Hopefully marriages and then babies. That's the, that's the ideal direction of that. <laughs> <laughs> but being a part of this, it means you get lots of RSVPs. You get lots of those because there's lots of weddings. And so those come in the mail and you see so-and-so's getting married. Here's the date. And then you must respond to it. You have to respond, that's even what RSVP means, respond s'il vous plaît, respond please. That's what it stands for. Get back to me, let me know. And usually, they usually pick the options for you. They don't just really like say like freehand it, like here, write a small paragraph in three more sentences about how you feel about coming to our wedding. <laughs> no, it's usually two, right? Joyfully accept, regretfully decline. And it's chosen for you, but those are your options, right? Ahead of time, and which one do you pick? Those have been decided for you. It's the same thing here with God. He is inviting you to join in on times of refreshing, a party. And he has chosen a binary option, and you must pick one. Repent and turn, enjoy, joyfully accept, or regretfully decline, and choose your own story. I like my story better. I like, being the narr- I like being the narrator because then I get to pick where the story goes, or I get, to, I get to be the one who talks about what this scene meant to me instead of letting you decide and tell me what it should mean. I get to define the meaning of my own story. I want to stay the author of my own story instead of submitting to the author of life and his story. There's only one way to accept God's invitation, and when you do, you are invited to a celebration. Times of refreshing are coming when you go to this party, but... All of you know, like, part of being an next generation church, you get lots of RSVPs. Like, a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of weddings. And to say joyfully accept will cost you something. Because <laughs> a lot of these people are forcing you to travel to go to their weddings. Because they don't live here. So they have to go back to their hometown or wherever they are for their wedding. And that means finding sitters, finding presents, finding uh, whatever arrangements, finding Airbnbs to stay where you need to go, making arrangements. To go to a wedding is a joyful thing. But it does cost you something. And the more you get invited to, the more you realize how costly some of those can be. When you're in a group, a church like this with lots of young people, you're like, man, I've got to take time off. For, I'm using all my vacation. I'm going to people's weddings. But what, it's a good problem to have, right? But it does cost you something. So there's one final D that wasn't mentioned. So you have drama, doctrine, doxology, but then you have discipleship. So that starts with chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. This element of discipleship. It's going to cost you something to accept this invitation, God wants you to say yes, but it will cost you something. Look at the first four verses, and this is where we'll end off for this morning. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men who came, the number of the men came to about 5,000." So most people like the story up to this point. There's this story. It's a good story. It's a sweeping, broad epic. And then now it has this dense, packed meaning and wisdom that can, that can help me with my life right now. And then I'm invited into this thing, and I have purpose with my life, and I want to have a job and have a life that means something. I don't just want to live and have it mean count for nothing. But then they check out at this point. You mean it's going to cost me something to join into somebody else's story? Oh, Never mind, too much. And so this is where people check out or they want to bounce. They don't want to be part of it because discipleship, following Jesus to joyfully accept the invitation will cost you something. So I'm sorry if you have never heard that before. But let's just be clear, to follow Jesus will cost you something. He is worth every last thing you will pay to follow him, but it will cost you something to enter somebody else's story, to let them be the author of your life and the narrative will change the way your story was going to play out. And that will feel like costs sometimes, but there are benefits, but it will cost you something. And look at how these people responded. Like, Understand the craziness of this story. This would be like if I am in mid-sentence and somebody came in and arrested me while I was talking to you. It says while they were speaking to the people, these people came and arrested them as I was talking. And then even crazier, imagine I'm getting hauled off by Popo, because I'm preaching Jesus, and, and all of you say, I want to roll with him. That's what happened here. He, these, he got arrested while they were preaching, and everybody's like, yeah, I'm with him. I want, the, I want to be on the arrested guy's team, because they knew what it was going to cost. They had no delusions that they were signing on for health, wealth, and prosperity, and nothing bad was ever going to happen, all rainbows and butterflies for the rest of my life. They knew it was going to cost them something because they saw it happen right in front of their eyes. These guys worship Jesus, and they're getting arrested for it. I think it's worth it. I'd rather be arrested and with those guys and be with Jesus and enter into eternity for times of refreshing before the Father because I didn't deny his son than to be spared the annoying glances of these men. I want to, he's worth it. They accepted the cost. They knew what they were getting into, and I want you to know exactly what you're getting into this morning. Jesus will cost you everything. He'll cost you everything, your life, your time, your calendar, your hopes, your dreams. But he will give you everything, infinitely more than you could have ever imagined. Even if you attained your petty little story, it pales in comparison to the story he's offering you. A sweeping epic where God has started everything from beginning until now and from kingdom come will continue to write his story. You get everything that is Christ is yours if you are in him. So the response to that this morning, we're actually going to see in two very clear demonstrations that we have baptisms, and then we have communion tables around the room. There are six tables. The two up front have gluten-free. Even these symbols themselves, these baptisms, these, these ordinances, have this drama doctrine, doxology built into them. This is water, right? This is water, and it's a tank, and then somebody's going to come up here, and they're going to stand, and then they're going to go underwater, and then they're going to come up out of the water, and you're like, okay, that's a neat story, kind of weird, like, if you just told me that story, I met a guy and he went underwater in front of a bunch of people. You're like, okay. <laughs> and you'd say, oh, it was a baptism. Oh, because it means something. There's a meaning to it. So the story means something. It means Jesus lived his life in front of people. He was nailed publicly to a cross where everybody could see him. And then they took his dead body off of that and put him underground where nobody could see him. And three days later, he rose from the grave, victorious over sin, Satan, and death, never to die ever again. And if you... Come to this tank, which is your first step in obedience if you have not done that. This is the first step. You say, I want to die with him. You see Jesus die, crucified, and he's like, I want to die with him. I want to to die with him so that my sins can be put on him. And that's the first step. And we're going to see that take place this morning. And then for those of you who have done that, there are tables of communion where where there's a table where there's bread and a cup. And you're like, well, that's weird. A bunch of people got together and ate a little bit of bread and a little bit of sip of juice from a cup. That's a weird story unless it means something. What's the meaning of this? Jesus' body was broken for your sins. His blood was poured out for your sins, and he has set a table, because it's not just I want to die with him, but I want to live with him. I'm going to live my life with him. This is something you do as a one-time death. Communion represents my ongoing daily bread is Jesus. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Who is Jesus sent from heaven, our daily bread? I need this every day, every week. He is my life. I've died with him, and I want to live with him. And I'm going to live my life to be with him. That is the symbol, and you are invited to join in on those. If you have not been baptized, talk to somebody and enter that first step. If you have been baptized and you worship Jesus, come to the table confessing, you are my life. Thank you for your story. That's so much better than mine. Thank you for the meaning that you fill my life with, that I've had such a hard time trying to scramble and fill my own life with meaning. Thank you for inviting me into your story. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a good storyteller. I love stories. I love reading stories with my kids. I love the tension and the climax and the resolution of a good story where the hero seems like he's about to lose and evil seems like it's going to win. And then by a miracle, goodness prevails. Some unforeseen element gets added to the story. Something drops in and everything changes on it. And good prevails and happily ever after And the credits roll. And we love good stories. It's why we go to movies. It's why we read books. We love stories. And God, thank you that you are the author of life. Your story is one of life. There was nothing and then you made everything by just a word. And in that story, you've provided a way for all of us to enter into your story. It's not just a story we watch on a screen, but it's a story that can be ours. Abraham can be our father. Moses can be our brother. Jesus, our savior. David, our friend. Thank you for inviting us into a family of people who have worshiped you and that when we do so, we don't just do it on an island. We don't just do so in Columbia, Missouri in 2020. We enter into a story that sweeps all times, all places where you are at work. Please give us faith to believe the meaning that you infuse into the story rather than trying to insist on our own meanings and trying to invent meanings out of thin air. Help us to embrace the meanings that you've put into life and accept them and to live in the wisdom of the way that you say this is the story and this is what it means. Help us to embrace that and to believe it and then help us to accept the invitation you have given us. You have warmly extended your hands with nails in them, with blood pouring down and said, Enter this story. Come, be with me, enter into my son who I must receive. And I promise you, I will receive Jesus. If you are in him, you are accepted. You are received. So help us today to accept you and to come forward into these tables and to receive communion. To take that as our very life, to confess it. And then help us to walk every day, counting the costs and paying them. Believing with joyful hearts that you are worth all of it. Help us to pay it all because we believe you are worth it all. And we love you, Jesus, and it's your name we pray. Amen.